transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers Stay Clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boys Easy Opening Smooth Pouring Container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. You can Google it or go on to any search engine and find out where free testing and the free testing site is available. But, Madam Vice President, the fact that we're still telling people to Google where you can get a test and... Well, you but, but, oh, but come on now. I mean, really, if you, if you want to figure out how to get across town to some restaurant you heard is great, you usually do Google. What kind of a show is this? A show where we just talk. Let's get rocking! <laughs> Five, four, three, two... What I would say is I'm going to shut down the virus, not the country. I'm going to shut down the virus. I'm going to shut down the virus. I'm going to shut down the virus. Can you expand just a little bit about uh, on what the president said when he was asked about controlling COVID? When he mentioned the new normal, was he moving away uh, from his campaign pledge of shutting down the virus? What he's referring to is the fact that we have uh, now, we're in a different place than we were a year ago. But wait, there's more. For unvaccinated, we are looking at a winter of severe illness and death. The president talked about a winter of severe illness and death. At the rate you guys are going, these tests are not going to be available until spring. I think I gave an update earlier that we'll have to start to have tests out the door in the coming weeks very soon to get these tests out to the public. But wait, there's more. We're not giving up on the people that remain unvaccinated. We still need to get them vaccinated. I think we need to find other measures uh, and mandates. Mandates. <laughs> Four till seven. News Talk five fifty KTSA and FM one oh seven one. KTSA News Time is four oh eight. Good afternoon, or as the kids would say, sup. Welcome to our dreadful little show. I am Jack Riccardi. This is five fifty and one oh seven one KTSA. We start with breaking news. The Supreme Court has issued the uh, I guess you'd say expedited rulings on the vaccine mandates. Uh, and as our experts had told us they would probably do, they kind of split. So on the OSHA mandate for employers with 100 or more workers, 6 to 3 staying that uh, vaccine mandate, saying OSHA does not have the authority to uh, require those businesses to uh, vaccinate employees or test employees. And that was a 6 to 3 vote, with the dissenters being the three liberals, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Breyer. Uh, the Supreme Court voted five to four in favor of the vaccine mandate for health care workers. And the dissenters there were the conservatives, um, Thomas Alito, Barrett, Gorsuch. Um, now, the thing about these two uh, vaccine mandates is that one of them was done under the auspices of OSHA as a workplace safety regimen, and the other one... Uh, connected the mandate to the fact that these health care companies and health care workers are federal contractors and have federal funding. That they, the, the, in other words, the federal government's nose is already under the tent 
of these companies, these uh, health care providers. We're going to talk here in just a minute to one of our constitutional law experts, Professor Bill Pyatt, about all of this. And I want to open up the phone lines to get your reaction. Your employer can still... Um, you know, can still require, man, uh, you know, vaccines, but now, uh, your employer is not under the, uh, gun of the federal government, do this or else. And, uh, that affects, we think, about a hundred million, uh, people. If what we hope happens now happens, this means that a lot of companies are going to ease off on requirements which in turn would mean that people are going to start to come back to work. People that were not working because they didn't want to comply, maybe now come back to work, maybe we get the trucks rolling again, maybe we get the supply chain in a little bit better shape. While all this was going on uh, today, even as this was happening at the Supreme Court, Travis County has announced new orders on businesses. They are in their level five uh, emergency with COVID up there in Austin and Travis County. And they uh, issued new orders. This is from KXAN TV. They issued new orders uh, on businesses where businesses can put signage up so that they're not making the businesses require masks. Um, but the enforceable requirement set forth by the orders, which are called protective orders, um, says that um, businesses have to post COVID-19 signage, and they have until January 17th at noon. The governor's office has already said the order from Travis County is in violation of his executive orders, and businesses in Travis County should ignore the Travis County order. President Biden is having what Ed Morrissey at HotAir.com calls a uh, horses have already left the barn moment on tests, vaccine tests. You know, as as Morrissey wrote in HotAir.com today, Joe Biden began imposing vaccine or testing mandates late last summer. The Omicron wave was beginning around Thanksgiving. And only now... Is Joe Biden promising to get enough tests to manage both mandates and a wave that may be over by the time the first batch of these tests arrives? Remember, we were already hearing that the Omicron uh, wave has crested in some parts of the world. It, it may have already crested in some of our big cities. So the president was making his announcement on the pandemic and promising 500 million more tests, but it's not clear when they would be coming. And, of course, he's already promised uh, $500 million, and those haven't arrived yet. This is what the president sounded like making this announcement today. Cut number four. Take a listen. I've been, uh, I've been saying that as we remain in this pandemic. Uh, this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And I mean by this, right now, both vaccinated and unvaccinated people are testing positive. But what happens after that could not be more different. If vaccinated people test positive, they overwhelmingly have either no symptoms at all or they have mild symptoms. And if they're if you're unvaccinated, if they test positive, there are you are 17 times more likely to get hospitalized. As a result, they're crowding our hospitals, leaving little room for anyone else who might have a heart attack or an injury in an automobile accident or any injury at all. And yes, the unvaccinated are dying from COVID-19. Now, I don't like to, uh, uh, you know, uh, 
outline the next steps we're taking against. Uh, I, I'd like to outline the next steps we're taking against over on the, the Omicron variant. You can find the nearest testing sites for you by Googling COVID test near me. Google COVID test near me. And to help uh, lead our federal testing program, I've talked, I've, 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 ta I've excuse me, I've tapped uh, Dr. Tom, Eng I hope I pronounced it, Eng 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 Englesby. Correct? Is that right? Wow. I think he lost his place in the teleprompter, or he lost his place sometime around 2020. Um, wouldn't the time to dramatically promise millions and billions of tests have been when you were imposing mandates that involve the option of testing? In other words, this emergency need for testing is largely a, an emergency created by his policies. And he also promised that they're going to um, deliver a lot more N95 masks because now it turns out that those are the masks you need to wear. Not the masks you've been wearing for a year and a half, but the N95 masks. When will those be arriving? Nobody knows. But there's more, there's more coming. Look, this was a bad day for the administration. The president's Atlanta speech is being panned by everybody, including members of his own party. He's lost at the Supreme Court on the mandates. Kirsten Cinema will get to this. Uh, torpedoed the filibuster uh, elimination and the election reform bill. She gave a very passionate speech. So that all of that is over. Um, but they, they are the wheels have completely come off on this. Now, in, in a normal political climate, the implosion of a president might be sort of good news for his vice president because vice presidents are often the heir apparent, right? Well, Kamala Harris couldn't be having a worse day either. She did an interview with NBC's Craig Melvin for the Today Show, a pretty sympathetic interviewer, Craig Melvin is. He's a pretty left-wing guy. Um, this did not go well at all. And I want to play a few excerpts of, of just how off the rails uh, this was. Um, he asked her a question that should be pretty straightforward for her to answer. Uh, will the Democrats have the same ticket? in 2024 that they had in 2020 is she running with president biden cut number five going to uh to see the same democratic ticket in 2024 i'm sorry we are thinking about today i mean honestly that I, I i know why you're asking the question because this is the part of the punditry and the right. the gossip around places like washington dc let me just tell you something we're focused on the things in front of us we're focused on what we need to do to, to address issues like affordable child care, what we need to do. So there have been that, no conversations that, about 2024. The American people sent us here to do a job. And right now there's a lot of work to be done. And that's my focus. It sounds sincerely. Like, okay. so, so if you believe that the most ambitious um, woman who ran for president in 2020, probably the most ambitious candidate on that stage with those 19 other Democrats, really has no interest in what happens to her next, okay, all right. So she says, I, I, I'm not even thinking about that. We're so focused on what's going on now. So he asks her about what's going on now. Where are those 500 million COVID tests that Biden promised? Now, this is where people that have been quitting Kamala Harris's office have complained she doesn't do her homework. She can't be bothered to prep for interviews and events. Listen to this answer she gives on the question of where are the tests. Cut number six. 
The 500 million tests that have been ordered that are going to be sent to every, every American, do we know when those are going out? Shortly. Though they're going to go out next shortly. They've been or? ordered. They've been ordered. We, I have to look at the current information. I think it's going to be by next week. But soon. Absolutely soon. And it is a matter of urgency for us. Should we have done that sooner? We are doing it. But should we have done it sooner? We are doing it. <sighs> um, he asked more about the testing. Uh, she had the same answer President Biden did. Uh, you should Google if you want to know where. See, I, I have people texting me, emailing me, Jack, I just found out I have COVID, or Jack, I think I have COVID. What do I do now? I tell them Google because I'm just a, a private citizen. When the government's response to something is you should Google about it, I, we might be in trouble. So here, here's the best part. And, and this one to me is, is the summary of, of Kamala Harris, the politician. Um, when she doesn't know what to say or how to answer, she just puts together a lot of words. Cut number eight. Listen to this. At what point does the administration say, you know what, the strategy isn't working. We're going to change strategies. Six former administration officials last week wrote that open letter urging the administration to change course, to change strategy. Is it time? It is time for us to do what we have been doing, and that time is every day. Every day it is time for us to agree that there are things and tools that are available to us to slow this thing down. And so right now we know we still have a number of people that, that is in the millions of Americans who have not been vaccinated and could be vaccinated, and we are urging them to get vaccinated because it will save their life. At, at what point but, does the administration acknowledge these people aren't going to get the shot? They're just not going to do it. I don't believe in giving up on people, Craig. I really don't. You know what she reminds me of? You remember when uh, in high school or college you'd have to write an essay answer on a test and you were really stumped? So you'd just start writing. And you'd figure, if I just start writing, maybe the answer will come to me. So you just start blabbing out and vomiting up a bunch of words and, and phrases, and you find sort of you know extended mix versions of, of saying short things, hoping it fills the page, fills the paragraph, fills the little blue book. <laughs> she, on a day when things were going so bad for her boss, she could have made herself look so much better with just a halfway decent interview with a guy that's throwing her... Really obvious questions. These are all, none of these Craig Melvin questions are anything but exactly the questions any interviewer would be asking her on a day like this. So that's where we're at. I'm in trouble with Facebook. I'll tell you that story coming up. Good thing I have this little radio show to do. Um, but anyway, in the meantime, uh, let's dig into the uh, Supreme Court's decisions and why they're different on the vaccine mandates. Uh, constitutional law professor Bill Pyatt joining us right now on the KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker Line. Professor, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Jack, and thank you very much for having me on. Could you give us the layman's kind of quick uh, explanation of, of why the Supreme Court uh, had two different decisions on vaccine mandates today? I think I can so in the big one, the National Federation of Independent Businesses versus OSHA, the Supreme Court said that while OSHA has the power to regulate occupational dangers, it did not have the power to regulate public health generally and make 
people get vaccinated if they happen to work for an employer that has more than 100 employees. Mm-hmm. The other case, Biden versus Missouri, the Secretary of Health and Human Services announced and the Supreme Court agreed that if there's a facility that gets Medicare or Medicaid funding, those facilities have to ensure that their staff are vaccinated. The difference is, as you pointed out, in the Medicare and Medicaid facilities, the federal government is already providing the funding. Congress has given broader powers to the Secretary of Health and Human Services to make sure that employees of those facilities adhere to whatever guidelines the Secretary determines. The OSHA case was a question of unelected, unnamed bureaucrats creating a mandate with no congressional authority. And the Supreme Court says we have we have a separation of powers in this country. The Congress has a role. Mm-hmm. The executive branch has a role. The judiciary has a role. The executive branch does not have the power to declare these broad health programs. Not, not talking about the wisdom of the programs, not talking mm-hmm. about whether these are good things or bad things, but whether they have the executive branch has the power on its own to impose them. And the court says, mm-hmm. no, you don't. Now, the court... I know. Sorry, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I, I was going to say, well, it, the, of course, as you noted, the states can still require vaccination mandates. Mm-hmm. Private employers could, on their own, require right. vaccination mandates. But the federal government can't do that. That power has traditionally been reserved to the states. And unless right. Congress specifically acts, OSHA doesn't have authority to do that. So it's by no means the end of vaccine mandates. It's the end of vaccine mandates under OSHA. Uh, was there any uh, hint in the decision as to whether or not there was another way forward if the Biden administration wants to try this again? Well, technically what happens is that uh, the OSHA mandate case goes back to the Sixth Circuit, so the Sixth Circuit can consider it. But if the Sixth Circuit rules contrary to what the Supreme Court has already done with the stay, the Supreme Court's going to block it again. The only way out of it for the Biden administration would be to go back to Congress, get specific authorization from Congress to OSHA to create these types of mandates. But even then, I think they're still going to run into the problem that, in general, the police powers are the powers of the states and not the federal government. So I honestly don't I honestly don't see a way forward for the Biden administration to impose a broad vaccination mandate. And I, I think it's over uh, for that aspect of it. He can he can use the persuasiveness of, of the bully pulpit if he has any left to try to encourage states to enact these mandates. And, you know, a lot of them, of course, you know, they're doing that already. He could try to get private employers to do this on their own, and some of them are doing it already. But the federal government does not have that power under the Constitution. And the the 6-3 majority on the Supreme Court is not, again, it's not ruling on whether vaccines are good or bad. It's whether the federal government, through the executive branch, has the power to order it. And they said, no, it does not. Constitutional Law Professor Bill Pyatt. Always appreciate it, Professor. Thank you tonight. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, it's not a good day to be Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. I think it's a good day for this country, though. I, I do. I, I mean, I think the Supreme Court ruling on these vaccine mandates is going to give us clarity. And here's what I mean by that. I, I really believe a lot of companies, a lot of employers in this country are doing a lot of things out of fear of the regime rather than what they they believe is best for their consu- their customers, best for their workers, best for their business plan. 
I think we're seeing this. I think this is what the wokeness thing is in corporate America. I think this is why car companies are tripping and falling over each other to go electric. I think a lot of it is a fear response, fear of, of government power. When you take that away, when you say it's not a mandate, it's up to you, I think you're going to see a lot of companies back off on this. And they have to if this is why they can't get people to come to work, if they cannot get people uh, to staff up, to drive the trucks, to stock the shelves, if this is what's holding them back from full staffing, they, they're going to have to do it. And, and I think you'll see it happen pretty quickly. But I want to get your reaction to these Supreme Court decisions, 210-599-5555. Now, although our experts were not surprised that they upheld the mandate on health care facilities, I still think that one is a problem because healthcare is an is an industry that is greatly understaffed whether you're talking about hospitals whether you're talking about nursing homes and long-term care facilities uh, or urgent care centers or what have you there's a real staffing issue talk to anybody who works in these in these businesses and they'll tell you that and they'll tell you that the reporting about being overwhelmed only tells you only talks about number of covid patients it doesn't tell you that what's really overwhelming them is that they are working with staffing levels that are lower than they were say in 2020 or 2019 uh, so yes you get more people going either to get tested or for for care we're also still catching up on all the things that the the elective things that people didn't do tests and procedures that people didn't do during the time in 2020 and 2021 when hospitals were saying don't come unless it's uh, an absolute emergency. So with all of that, it's like a perfect storm. And the vaccine mandate to this day, to this moment, is still keeping needed frontline workers out of that workforce. Your thoughts on that, 210-599-5555. So... Last night, late in the show, I read a letter, part of a letter, that was written by an immunologist in Israel. And he'd written this open letter. Basically, it's, I guess it's kind of, you know, I had to get this off my chest kind of thing. Um, he's blasting the responses of government to the pandemic. And really, not just his own government, because when you hear it, you realize this, is, this goes beyond just the nation of Israel. And this was published uh, in, I guess, one of the uh, newspapers, and it's been online. And so I read some of it. I'm going to read a little of it here in a moment. And then today I posted it on my Facebook page. I, I had a hunch there might be pr- trouble with this because it's about COVID and because this guy is saying things that the powers that be don't want to hear. So I purposely did not post it, for example, on the station's Facebook page. I just put it on my own because we can afford to lose mine. And it looks like we might because they've told me you need to take it down. Well, I'm not going to take it down. So it's there as of now. Um, and I've also got a link to it um, on my um, Jack Riccardi Just a Minute video, which you can find at KTSA.com. Of course, at some point, the link may not work either because who knows how far they'll go to shut this guy up. Uh, but his name is Dr. Ehud Kimran. Uh, he's the head of the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at Tel Aviv University. He's considered one of his country's top immunologists. 
And some of what he wrote includes this. In the end, the truth will always be revealed, and the truth about coronavirus policy is beginning to be revealed. When the destructive concepts collapse one by one, there's nothing left but to tell the experts who led the management of the pandemic, we told you so. He writes, two years late, you finally realize that a respiratory virus cannot be defeated and that any such attempt is doomed to fail. You do not admit it because you have admitted almost no mistake in the last two years. But in retrospect, it is clear that you have failed miserably in almost all of your actions, and even the media are having a hard time covering your shame. You refuse to admit, he writes, that the infection comes in waves that fade by themselves, despite years of observation and scientific knowledge. You insisted on attributing every decline of a wave solely to your actions. And so, through false propaganda, you overcame the plague. And again you defeated it, and again, and again, and again. You refuse to admit that mass testing is ineffective, despite your own contingency plans explicitly stating so. You refuse to admit that recovery is more protective than a vaccine, despite previous knowledge and observations. You insisted on ignoring the fact that the disease is dozens of times more dangerous for risk groups and older adults than it is for younger people who are not in risk groups, despite knowledge on that that came from China as early as 2020. You refuse to adopt the Barrington Declaration, signed by more than 60,000 scientists and medical professionals. You chose to ridicule, slander, distort, and discredit them. Instead of the right programs and people, you've chosen professionals who lack relevant training... You've not set up an effective system for reporting side effects from the vaccines, and reports on side effects have been deleted. Doctors avoid linking side effects to the vaccine lest you persecute them, as you did to some of their colleagues. I think that's a very important point. Think how much is known about this virus and the vaccine, but it's known by people who cannot afford to say it out loud for what would happen to them. I mean, just let that sink in. And he goes on. You've destroyed the education of our children and their future. You made children feel guilty, scared, smoke, drink, get addicted, drop out, and quarrel. As school principals around the country can attest, you've harmed livelihoods, the economy, human rights, mental health, and physical health. You slandered colleagues who did not surrender to you. You turned the people against each other, divided society. You branded without any, without any scientific basis people who chose not to get vaccinated as enemies of the people and spreaders of disease. You promote a draconian policy of discrimination, denial of rights. When you compare the destructive policies you are pursuing with the sane policies of some other countries, by the way, I don't know, I'm not sure which other countries he's referring to, you can see that the destruction you have caused has only added victims beyond the vulnerable to the virus. The economy you ruined the unemployed you caused, the children whose education you destroyed, they are the surplus victims as a result of your own actions only. And that's not even all of it, but it's it's very powerful. And um, we probably had more email about that last night than anything else we had done on the show. So anyway, I, I, I urge you to check it out, and um, I don't know if I would urge you to share it, only because I don't know how strongly attached you are to your social media accounts. If Facebook takes my account down, they can freaking have it as far as I'm concerned. I only do it because the company makes me do it, 
And I'm not saying that to be disrespectful of my employers. I understand why they want me to do it. I try very hard to comply with that. But I think Facebook and Twitter are toilet bowls. Uh, they're intellectual wastelands. And if I'm barred from having a page there, I will use the time I have been spending on that page way more fruitfully and productively, and I promise I'll keep in touch with you one way or another if it's not on that Facebook page. But at least for now, uh, the article is there. If you will go to KTSA.com and under KTSA Shows, uh, you'll see my uh, just-a-minute video. It says, Go Ahead Facebook, Make My Day. Click on that. There's a link to the letter in that. So if you have Facebook, you can find it on the Jack Riccardi Facebook page. If you don't have Facebook, you can find it at KTSA.com. Under KTSA Shows, there's uh, my video, which is Go Ahead, Facebook, Make My Day. And, um, yeah, people people have uh, been very captivated, very interested in what he had to say. And I think, um, I, I, I truly believe he speaks for many people in the medical profession. I don't know much about him. But I know there are people, because they talk to me off the record, who have a lot of angst about what's going on, but they also need their job. They, you know, they need, they need their income. And they recognize that there is a, a, a sort of retribution out there right now that they will be canceled if they speak their mind. Now, these are not people, this is what, this is what ticks me off about Facebook and its arbitrary rules. This guy isn't saying one thing about ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine or you should, uh, eat the leaves of this plant to fight COVID. He's not, he's not touting any junk science or even any controversial science not all not all controversial science is junk science but he's not he's not touting anything he's not saying you should do this or you should not do that he is taking on powerful people if if the internet is good for anything other than porn and games this is what it's good for taking on power Back in the early days when we were all starry-eyed and naive about how this Internet thing would, would turn out, this is what we thought would be its strength. It's quintessential, sort of every man can have his say, function. So he's talking to the most powerful people in his country and in the world. Now, what are they afraid of? He's one guy. He's a, he's a doctor. He doesn't have an army. He doesn't have a he doesn't have an air force. He doesn't have any missiles. He is obviously qualified, but but frankly, even if he wasn't, even if he was Joe Blow with an opinion, he's one guy. They're so afraid of it. That's why, in a way, that's that's why I'm willing to lose the Facebook page because th- this is the there's no point in having it. If this is not allowed, if this is not okay, I have no you I have no interest in them. I have no interest in playing by their rules. Opinions aren't going to hurt anybody. Criticism of powerful people isn't going to hurt anybody. The whole story of human history is a story of when powerful people were not challenged, when there wasn't somebody getting in their face 
questioning what they were doing or, or questioning whether they had the right to do it or questioning the after effects the, the you know did what you did what you ordered us to do or did your policy or did your plan work that's what it's all about we've we can do this without facebook but facebook could have been a great tool could have been a great adjunct to it but they've decided they want to be in with the in crowd they want to be part of the regime of course that will eventually eat them up the thing about powerful people and i'm sorry to if i'm stereotyping or i'm generalizing too much i probably am but one of the things i've noticed about most powerful people is their users they use people and institutions and and they use them up and they don't care they don't care because they don't have to care. Now, the people that run social media companies, yeah, they're powerful. But the people they're in bed with are much more powerful. And they can use them up, and they will. And they'll be surprised when they're on the outs and they never saw it coming. When they've been thrown away. So the president went to Capitol Hill because somebody told him that if he showed up, he could convince... I don't know who. I'm not sure who, who who he was aiming it at. He and his White House have demonized Senators Manchin and Cinema. He in Atlanta he called them Bull Connor and George Wallace and Jefferson Davis. I, I I don't know. After you've done that, I'm not sure how you can go to the Capitol and say, "Hey, let's reason together." So he goes up there, and literally while he's going up there, Senator Kirsten Cinema is letting him and everyone else know that she's not having any of it. The Kirsten Sinema is a Democratic senator from Arizona. She's a progressive Democrat. Um, she's somebody I don't agree with on very many things. But to her credit, when she takes a position, it appears that she owns it. It's not been assigned to her by the Democratic Party or Chuck Schumer or whoever. So I may not agree with those positions, but but she owns them. And she is not in favor of federalizing elections, and she knows why that's a bad idea. She is not in favor of ending the filibuster in the Senate, and she knows why that's a bad idea. By the way, so does Biden, so does Schumer. We have them. You've heard the tape. We've played the tape. They, they all have known, they've all given impassioned, eloquent speeches in defense of the very things they now say we, we have to get rid of. So I want to play for you a couple of clips of what she said. And she was torpedoing the whole Biden visit, even as it was going on. Um, she was explaining why we need the filibuster in the first place. Cut number two, listen to this. American politics are cyclical. And the granting of power in Washington, D.C. is exchanged regularly by the voters from one party to another. This shift of power back and forth means the Senate 60s vote threshold has proved maddening to members of both political parties in recent years. Viewed either as a weapon of obstruction or a safety net to save the country from radical policies, depending on whether you serve in the majority or the minority. But what is the legislative filibuster other than a tool that requires new federal policy to be broadly supported by senators representing a broader cross-section of Americans? 
a guardrail, inevitably viewed as an obstacle by whoever holds a Senate majority, but which in reality ensures that millions of Americans represented by the minority party have a voice in the process. Demands to eliminate this threshold from whichever party holds the fleeting majority amount to a group of people separated on two sides of a canyon shouting that solution to their colleagues. And that makes the rift both wider and deeper. Boy, she sounds just like George Wallace, or as I imagine, Jefferson Davis would have sounded. <laughs> I mean, she, that's, a, that's, an, that's a civics lesson right there. And I'm playing a liberal, progressive, democratic United States senator delivering a civics lesson because it, it, we need it so badly, we'll take it from wherever we can get it. On this issue, she's making more sense than most people in D.C., and she made the point, you know, I, I actually remember when, back in the day, Biden was running as a centrist. He was a uniter. We're not going to have divisiveness. Now he is smearing people in his own party for not acting in total lockstep with him. And he's throwing hissy fits. This is the behavior they called out from Trump. Biden's doing a perfect spot-on imitation of the same thing. And she says, look, these rules, these norms, are more important than the president getting his way. She even says in the speech, it's not that I disagree with him. She says, I don't like what the states are doing on elections and election management. But the states are the place to fight that battle, not to override them here. And she says, protecting... Um, these norms, like the 60-vote threshold in the Senate, is more important than what the president wants. Cut number three. I stand here today is considering questions regarding fundamental rights Americans have enjoyed for decades. Eliminating the 60-vote threshold on a party line with the thinnest of possible majorities to pass these bills that I support will not guarantee that we prevent demagogues from winning office. Indeed, some who undermine the principles of democracy have already been elected. Rather, eliminating the 60-vote threshold will simply guarantee that we lose a critical tool that we need to safeguard our democracy from threats in the years to come. It is clear that the two-party strategies are not working. Not for either side, and especially not for the country. You know, the the founders didn't live in such a different time that they did not imagine or could not understand. And, and, and in fact, they experienced gridlock. They experienced bitter partisan warfare don't let anyone tell you that it was all roses and 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 you know chocolates when washington was president george washington um probably went to an early grave in part because of the the anguish and the tension uh and the difficulty he had holding factions together in the early years of this country they they knew that there would be this kind of divisiveness 
they knew about demagogues and demagoguery. It, 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 had, it has existed all through history. They have existed all through history. There were demagogues in, in the period of the founding. Aaron Burr was one of the most dangerous men America's ever produced and came as close as you can possibly come to being president without becoming president. But I, I think they, in understanding that, specifically and purposefully designed into the, 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 the way the Senate differs from the House and then the traditions of things like filibustering, they wanted, as she's correct in pointing out, they wanted uh, sweeping change. They wanted uh, demagogic, uh, demagogic, uh, or I guess demagoguery, to be limited, to be short-circuited. And you know what? It works. She makes a great point in the speech. She says, you know, you watch Republican presidents get incredibly frustrated when it's a Democratic Senate. You watch Democratic presidents get incredibly frustrated, frustrated when it's a Republican Senate. And it's supposed to do that. And if you can't get some semblance of two-party support, then it's probably not obviously a good idea. Now, that doesn't mean that good ideas will be held back or delayed or slowed down, but that price is worth paying for the benefit of stopping somebody from just steamrolling and getting everything they want. Or let me put it very simply. No matter who you vote for, no matter who serves as president in the future, it's a dangerous thing for anybody, any president, any president, to get everything he wants. Any of them. Well, I don't know uh, whether I can even believe this or not, but uh, Real Clear Politics has a poll that says President Biden's approval numbers with Hispanic voters is at 28%. It's lower than his overall approval numbers. So his overall approval numbers are in the mid-30s. Hispanic approval of his job performance, 28%. uh, 29% with independence. I've never seen numbers like that in, in modern times, or maybe in any times. But it's going to be interesting to see how they respond to Hispanic voters. Let, let's just say broadly whether this poll is exactly accurate or not. Um, Hispanic voters are not happy with Joe Biden. Um, I wonder what he'll say to them. When, during the 2020 campaign, the polls indicated that he was underperforming with African-American voters, uh, he told them they weren't black if they didn't vote for him. So I can't wait to hear what he comes up with for Hispanic voters, or as the Democrats insist on calling them, the Latinxes. I wonder if that's where the unraveling began. When that word started coming out and being bandied about, man, did I hear from a lot of people who were like, where the F did that come from? Who renamed us? <laughs> that's not a. That didn't come from within the... The community, that came from a bunch of limousine liberals. 
their idea of helping people is renaming them or rehyphenating them. And of course, Latinx also has the uh, additional benefit in their eyes of being a gender neutral descriptive. So we don't have Latinos or Latinas, we have Latinxes. It doesn't even sound like an ethnic group. It sounds like a drug, like if something you'd ask your doctor about. That's a, you know, ask your doctor if Latinx is right for you, or a medical procedure that you probably wouldn't want to get. So, if these numbers are even sort of accurate, that is a seismic shift in politics. Now, remember the whole premise of the Democratic Party in the modern era, is that there are these groups of people who need them. They're not a tip, a traditional political party. A traditional political party puts together a bunch of proposals, ideas, slogans. We want to make your life better. We want to help you. A lot of it is bold bleep, but, you know, that's the, that's the approach, right? Whether you're a political party in the United States or some other country, it's always, we want to make your life better. We want to make your life easier. We're going to do some things for you. But the Democratic Party's message is, you can't make it without us. You need us. You'd be nothing without us. You ain't black. So they've got these groups, right? And it's African-American voters, and it's Hispanic voters, and it's gay voters, and it's Asian-American voters to some extent. It's, you know, to, to, to lesser extents, other groups. But they're the groups are, are starting to split and fracture. And what's even more alarming to the Democrats is they're not splitting and fracturing because of anything the Republicans are doing. The Republicans don't have a clue about this. <laughs> they're, 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 the, they're perhaps the beneficiaries of it, but they have no idea why they're getting those voters or why they might have, be able to get them. I mean, I'm generalizing. There, there are some people in the Republican Party who grasp this, but I can tell you a lot of them really don't. You can tell. And they may think, and they may get overconfident, and they may think, oh, it's all coming our way. It's all gonna, it's all gonna come over to us. And it's not. They're sadly mistaken. People that are learning they don't need the Democratic Party certainly don't need the Republican Party. But what happens to all your policies that are based on, on, you need us. You can't do it without us. You'll never make it without us. What happens, for example, on immigration? The whole purpose of the Democrats' open border strategy on the southern border is new voters who will be our voters. What if that's not true? What if that's not working? Will they suddenly become border hawks? We're cracking down. And again, it's fascinating to watch all this because it's in play without the Republicans having much of an idea about it or anything to do with it. I mean, Trump Trump got a, a whiff of this. He had some grasp of this. I'm not sure how much of it he knew, but he did a number of things that optically were designed to say, hey, come on over. And he said famously when he first started running, I forget if it was an interview or a speech, but he said to African-American voters, why not Why not take a chance on me? What have you got to lose? You've, you've given them your un unwavering support you live in cities where you've allowed them to govern for decades and decades and decades everything's gotten worse by every metric you're not doing well 
What have you got to lose? Now, it's going to take more than that, but at least he was clued in that there was something starting to shift. Well, the shift has happened. It's happening. 210-599-5555. And again, if Republicans think they can just sit there and this will all come their way, uh, they're sadly mistaken. People don't have to be a Republican or a Democrat. I know that sounds like a really obvious statement. I don't mean to be Captain Obvious, but you realize... Politicians really think that's how we are. We can't be outside of that two-party system. You've got to be in one or the other, unless you're some wingnut that's in the Green Party or something. But, I mean, we can just decide we don't have any use for them or we don't care to vote or we're not interested in the political process. That will happen. So, yes, Democrats are losing. doesn't mean Republicans are gaining. But it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Biden has taken what was already starting to splinter and fracture. And he is stumbling and bumbling around with it and dropping it on the floor. And the fractures and the cracks are getting bigger. That Atlanta speech uh, is being universally uh, panned. uh, And it was so bad that Stacey Abrams didn't even go to his speech. I mean, here he is going to her state where she's running for governor again. And she didn't even show up for his event. She wanted to be seen with him, photographed with him. And then what he turned out and said, she probably felt like she made the right decision. Then he goes to the the Capitol to try to turn the tide on uh, the filibuster and election reform. And while he's there, Kirsten Sinema torpedoes that. And then the Supreme Court this afternoon comes back uh, on the vaccine mandates, which is what we're going to talk about right now with our next guest, Cornell Law Professor William Jacobson and the man behind LegalInsurrection.com on our KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker line. Professor, it's good to have you. Good afternoon to you. Hi, thanks for having me on. Um, in, in the simplest terms, for those of us that aren't lawyers, how do you explain the rulings on the employer mandate versus the medical worker mandate? Very simply, two different agencies, two different sets of regulations. They operate under the Supreme Court majority, six to three, found that for OSHA, that their regulations and their authority did not enable them to, in a sweeping motion, uh, require all employers with 100 employees to require vaccines or testing, um, as opposed to the CMS, which is Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services, um, which operates under a different statute, five to four. Uh, two of the people who voted against the OSHA regulations, Chief, Chief Justice Roberts, Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh, switched sides and said they believe that the CMS regulations did cover uh, these regulations. So two different agencies two different sets of regulations. That's why they seem to be inconsistent, mm-hmm. or at least they have different results, but they're not right. necessarily inconsistent. And do you agree with the the reasoning behind each of those? Well, I do with OSHA. I mean, clearly they just, uh, and there was that very famous tweet by the uh, chief of staff in the White House, Ron Klain, um, who said, uh, we need a workaround because we can't get Congress to do anything. And this is the workaround. And I think that even came up in the oral argument that what they're doing is they're finding agencies and saying, is there anything in the wording of the statute of their authority that we can use? 
And for such a sweeping mandate that would affect 80 million workers and indirectly, you know, over 100 million people, if you take into account families and all those sort of things, um, that if you're going to do something that substantial, you need clear congressional intent. And they did not find it. The CMS, I think, was a little less controversial because it affected fewer people. Now, still 10 million people. But uh, the with CMS, the authority was that it's uh, not operating your business. It's participating in the Medicare programs. So mm-hmm. it was you have to do a lot of things to participate in government programs. You have to fill out all these forms and certify you're doing all these different things. So they added this to the list of things you have to certify that you're doing. Uh, now, 10 million people is a lot of people. And obviously, if you're a Medicare Medicare provider, which is most facilities, you're going to be affected by this. So it is extremely mm-hmm. broad. But I think, you know, uh, and they, they flipped uh, Roberts and Kavanaugh on that particular point mm-hmm. that it was within their scope. It, you know, um, I, I'm always curious in a case like this or in, in cases like this, are there any hints from the court as to how if if the Biden administration wants to try this again, is there anything in there that hints at how they might do it? Or does this really kick it back to the states and to the employers themselves? Well, I didn't see anything in there that was, you know, hey, do one, two, three, and next time you'll do better. I, I mean, I didn't see that in there from the majority. I mean, the majority said you don't have the authority to do this. Now, I think uh, if the Biden administration wanted to come back, perhaps if they narrowed it dramatically and said we would apply it only to employers, not on some random arbitrary hundred employee limit, but, you know, people who work you know, uh, in close proximity to each other. You know, if there's in close proximity without the ability to use PPE, you know, protective gear. So, I mean, if they tried to narrow it dramatically so that it was in a circumstance you might argue actually implicated the workplace. I mean, OSHA regulates the workplace. It doesn't mm-hmm. regulate the health of the whole country. Right. And I think that was pretty much the problem. They were essentially through a back door trying to regulate the entire health of the country when their authority is things peculiar and specific to the workplace. Yeah. No, I think you, I think you're exactly right about that. And, and, and particularly it, it has to be galling uh, to them to see that sort of agency shopping that Ron Klain was, was recommending. Um, I mean, that that's, that's the antithesis of government living within its constitutional boundaries. That's right. And this was, you know, this basically affects the whole country. I mean, you know, uh, uh, 80 million employees add their families in mm-hmm. and there you go. You've got, you know, more yeah. than half the country right there. Yeah. yeah you're, you're giving OSHA powers no one ever imagined or intended it to have. Professor William Jacobson, read him at LegalInsurrection.com. Um, I always do and I always appreciate it and I appreciate your time tonight. Thank you. Great. Thank you. These uh, vaccine mandates for private businesses were going to be a mess. We already have a labor shortage that is serious. Um, it is caused by government um, policymaking, but it is not something government can solve. Government can't make people go back to work, but government is the reason a lot of people got out of the workforce or a workplace. And I don't want to undersell this. Politicians didn't just pay people to stay home. When you hear people say that, that's only half the story. They pay people to stay home. They pay people to sit on their asses. They also redefined staying home and sitting on your ass as noble. I mean, 
you were a you were a war hero in 2020 if you if you stayed in your house you were you know you deserved medals pinned to your chest they told you you were doing something brave and you were serving your fellow man by not serving him i mean this is what they did this is what they said they redefined work if you go to work in a pandemic you're selfish because you could catch covid and give it to others you could catch covid and burden our hospital system i thought hospitals were there f- for us when we got sick i didn't know we weren't I, I, I apparently we're supposed to avoid getting sick at any at all costs don't go to the hospital what do you think we built it for so you could go there when you're sick you selfish greedy capitalist so they they've redefined work and it's a serious problem. It's a mess that we all have to live with. So I think you're going to see some sanity return. I hope I'm right about this. And at the same time, Senator Cinema basically did some, what is it? What was that term that, that Nancy Pelosi used one time? She called it legislative judo. Well, she did some legislative judo on the Democrats' push to end the filibuster so they could pass their horrible voting rights bill, which is neither about voting or about rights, but is about federalizing elections to tilt every future election in their favor. So no mandate, no federalizing elections, no build back better, no end to the filibuster, at least for right now. Biden's approval rating is at 33%. Kamala Harris just basically fell apart on the Today Show. Um, And they are having an absolute meltdown on the liberal channels. The Joy Reads and so forth are in absolute abject snit. Word you don't hear very often. They're they're in a snit. Um, and by the way, as is often the case, when people don't get their way, sometimes they overreact to the denial of their way. Like you don't buy your kid the cereal in the cereal aisle, so he starts screaming that you don't love him. <laughs> right? Oh, that's how I show I a box of Lucky Charms is how I show I love you. So today they're saying on MSNBC that the Supreme Court is anti-vaccine. Nope. Not what they said. Not what they did. This isn't a ruling against the vaccine. This, this doesn't make it any harder to get the vaccine. This isn't an anti-science ruling. The Supreme Court didn't issue a tranche of opinions about the science of vaccines or natural immunity or mask wearing or which mask to wear. In fact, they're unique. I think the Supreme Court might be the only uh, part of the government that hasn't told us what the hell to do. And most of that advice has been wrong or unsciency. So the reactions today to this are meltdown reactions, overreactions, and 
mark my words, if it hasn't already started, now obviously since 4 o'clock I haven't checked any of this, if it hasn't already started tonight, tomorrow they'll be back to, we've got to expand the court. We, these, we're, these are not the justices we need. Now, if they'd gone the other way, they'd be carving statues out of, out of cheese to them. But because it didn't go their way, or tofu, it would really be tofu on the left, right? Not cheese. Um, those right-wingers, those anti-vax right-wingers, that Amy Coney Barrett, they love to play that whole, she's the handmaid's tale. They've sold more copies of that damn book by their, their total obsession with Amy Coney Barrett. I don't know why the left gets so torqued about the Supreme Court. We said this the other day. The Supreme Court is a funny place because everyone who goes there, if they're appointed by a Democratic president, they're usually liberal justices, and they stay liberal. If they're appointed by Republican presidents, they're usually conservatives, and they only stay conservative about 30 or 40% of the time. They should love the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is like some kind of magic trick. Liberals go in and nothing happens to them. Conservatives go in and they move to the left. But they're so upset today. And they're, they're piling and conflating all these other things. So this, this Supreme Court says you can have as many guns as you want. You can freely spread a virus. You can ignore congressional subpoenas. You can violently overturn elections. I mean, just total. So when they are having this bad a day, you and I are having a great day. The people that are having a terrible day are proof that you and I are having a great day. Freedom is having a great day. Federalism is having a great day. 210-599-5555. We'll kick it around on 550 and 1071 KTSA. Now, the president went down to Georgia, and um, I did not check this out, but according to uh, a couple of different um, blogs that I read today, if you go through the whole transcript of the event, now, again, I'm, I'm not saying I've done this, But if you go through the whole transcript of the event and the speeches given by President Biden and Vice President Harris, no one mentions the victory of Georgia's football team the night before. The night before, Georgia, the University of Georgia, won its first national title in 41 years. And look, you don't have to be a football fan. If you go to an SEC state... It doesn't matter whether you're a football fan or not. It's a big deal. And you know how politicians are. They always like to make some sort of local color observations or remarks, right? Like they, they like to pretend they know everybody and they know the local customs and they'll name drop the local politicians or the local town diner or the local this or the local that, right? I mean, that's every politician does that. That's, that's good politics. Imagine how negative and angry you'd have to be to go to Georgia and forget to mention that they won the title. Again, if that's true, and I, I did not hear them say anything about it, and I was surprised. I thought they would. But if it's true that they didn't, it just underscores the joylessness and the unrelenting anger and negativity and disappointment. We can't acknowledge the football team winning the big game because we're too busy telling everybody how 
bad they are and how racist they are and how we can't depend on them, rely on them, trust them. One other thing, the guy running for the Senate down there as a Trump Republican played football for that team the last time they won the championship, so maybe they didn't want to mention it for that reason. I don't know. Um, I uh, I thought this was interesting. They're experimenting with a um, nasal spray. This is in Finland. Uh, they think they've discovered a nasal spray that could keep people from getting from getting infected with COVID-19 for up to eight hours. And all you'd have to do is mist it into your nostrils. It's cheap, easy to manufacture. It just inhibits the virus, um, you know, from, from bonding, I guess, uh, or attaching, you know, how those spike proteins attach. It just does, it can't do it. So they're saying this would not be in place of vaccines. And the scientists, in fact, say we're not, we're not anti-vaccine. But what's going to happen going forward, I think, is COVID's going to be around, you know, two years, five years, ten years, there'll be, there'll be coronaviruses. There, there have been coronaviruses before this one that we're all obsessed with, and there will be others after it. But I think what's going to happen over time, if we look into the crystal ball, is people are just going to manage this the way they manage other colds and flus and viruses, there will be people that will do nothing but just say, hey, I'm going to take good care of myself. There will be people who will take every over-the-counter product they can get their hands on. You know, they'll have armloads of pills and sprays and syrups. And, you know, there'll be people that will do homeopathic or all-natural things and swear by those. And you'll do what you think you need to do. And you'll do it maybe in conjunction with a doctor you trust or a PA that you trust. That's that's what's eventually going to happen. Uh, the 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 pressure cooker of this thing right now is that for the first time in our lives, government is trying to do a top down micromanagement of a health decision. And I guess the closest thing I can think of is the so-called war on drugs, you know, where the government is only now conceding that it can't possibly, no matter how much money it spends, no matter how much it polices, and no matter how much it violates people's constitutional rights, there is absolutely no way to guarantee that people will not put things into their body to feel hippy-dippy or good or forget their troubles or whatever it is. But it, look how long it took to let go of the conceit that we're going we're gonna to stamp out marijuana. Oh, on second thought, we'll um, license the sale of it and put taxes on it. Okay. So I think the future is going to be products like maybe this nasal spray or other things. And, and look... You, you don't have to use it. Or you may be very excited to use it. I don't know. Imagine that. Imagine just going to your medicine chest when you feel like it, pulling out what you feel like using, and using it. 
have to explain to our kids that's how it used to be. We we used to be so smart that we could take care of our own health. We didn't need members of Congress and governors and mayors telling us what to do. We used to be so smart we could do it without them. Really, Grandpa? Yeah. It was some kind of time. Tomorrow night, I'll tell you about life before Netflix. Um, Queen Elizabeth. You know, I'm not a big royal family follower, fan, whatever. Some people I know, I've got people in my family that they know more about the royal family than they do about our family. But <laughs> I've never been that, I've never been fascinated with that. The whole Charles and Diana and William and the babies and the, I, I, I just, I, no offense, I just don't. To me, those are just people. They're not better than me. They're just like us, only they have a, a lifestyle and live in a bubble that we can't imagine and they can't imagine our lives, but they're just people. I'm not fascinated by them. But, you know, Queen Elizabeth is is a different story. This lady is almost 100 years old. She has spanned, her life has spanned history. And she's made some of it. And I think the problem they're going to have is that when she goes, there's no one else like her in that culture. She's the literally the last vestige of what made England great. So anyway, I read today, if I'm understanding this correctly that um, she has ordered Andrew to give up his military titles and affiliations and other royal titles and privileges as he goes into this uh, legal battle with the, the, the young woman that accuses him of, of molesting her and, and uh, engaging in sex trafficking with Jeffrey Epstein. So I'm not really that interested in the case. I haven't followed it that closely. But that is some hardcore stuff when your mother is is laying down the law like that. That's good for her. That's why I say when, when she's gone, and I hope she lives many, many more years, but there just isn't anybody else like that, in my opinion. Anyway, uh, 210-599-5555. So vaccine mandates may not be a thing much longer for private employers, contractors, government contractors, medical uh, outfits that take government money and have government contracts. Uh, They're still going to have them, says the Supreme Court. But employers do not have to require, the government cannot make employers mandate either a vaccine or the testing regimen that was supposed to be the alternative to it. Leaving aside the fact that it probably isn't even possible to do. Uh, do you think they got it right? And do you think this is an anti-vaccine ruling? Because I don't, I don't see how it is. Help me understand that. How, how is, how, why is it so hard to separate? Maybe I should ask it this way. Why is it so hard to separate the idea of Oh, there's a vaccine? Okay, I'll, maybe I'll get that. From, there's a vaccine, you have to get it. Or you can't work. 
You can't go to public places. You can't be with the rest of the human race. You can't be included. And we've had politicians come out and even say, we're going to make life really difficult, really hard on the unvaccinated. Even the term, the unvaccinated. And, you know, this is the antithesis of modern politics. If anything, most modern politicians, they're always about, uh, you know, we want to make your life easier. It's usually a lie, but they're usually promising to make your life easier. They're usually promising to, to throw stuff your way. On this issue, they're reveling in their power to make your life hard. But for people that keep blurring the vaccine with the vaccine mandate, I guess my question to them is an age-old question. Good ideas don't require force. So if you believe in the vaccine, why are you unwilling to let it exist on its own merits? And if you believe in forcing it, then you're contradicting the idea that it's a good idea, that it's a it's a decision I would make in my own interest or in the interest of the people around me. And um, are, are the people that are for this really unable, are they truly, genuinely unable to see how fast this could be turned against them on some future issue? How fast they could find themselves on the other side of something? Are they, are they literally unable to imagine some future president, some future political majority using this example or, or precedent to force them, to compel them, to threaten them? I mean, they really can't see that? It's so obvious. And then you'll have people say, well, um, it's an emergency. Don't you understand? It's an emergency. Okay, but... Even if I don't share your definition that this is the, the, the killer plague and we're all going to die from it, because that's clearly not supported by science, but even if I, if I don't share your urgency, you do understand that your urgency does not create a new power for government. It doesn't create a new right. The world's full of people that are on fire about this or that cause. Believe me, in my business, I hear from a lot of them. The world's full of people who have one issue and they burn for it. But they don't get to have their way. They get to, they get to rail about it, preach about it, persuade, post. They can spend every waking minute trying to convince other people to do what they do or eat what they eat or what, but it doesn't convey to them or confer on them a right or a power, just because they feel so strongly. 210-599-5555 as we break down this decision, or these decisions tonight from the Supreme Court. Frank is on 550 and 107.1 KTSA. Frank, good evening. Hey, how you doing, Jack? I think you're right on the mark in that you, you, hit, you hit the important part here. Uh, declaring an emergency doesn't give uh, the president the right to violate the Constitution. There's nothing in the Constitution that says he has the power to declare emergencies. Uh, once again, he's totally bypassing the legislative process. 
those are elected representatives. If they want a law requiring something of people, then it's their job to pass it and his job to sign it. But if he has the power to declare an emergency and then require steps be taken by private citizens to comply with the emergency, he's basically making law. And what stops him from sending, uh, activating the National Guard in a particular state and having them go out and round up people and force them to get in line for vaccine? I mean, this is just, you know, we're not in a police state. And the fact that they're running around saying pandemic, emergency, whatever, you know, I agree that there's a health issue here. But like you said, the president doesn't have. But you know what's you know what's weird, and, and I agree with what you're saying, Frank. But you know what's weird is a lot of the people. I don't want to say all of them, but a lot of the people who are acting like you just described are also the people that told us they were petrified that Donald Trump would be a exactly. dictator. That's, so that's, help that's, me understand. That's, you're that's, on the one hand, yeah. you are worried about a president with too much power. But then in the next breath, you're telling me how a president can invent new powers any old time. Exactly. And in answer to your question was, did the Supreme Court get it right? I'd say they got it half right. First of all, the first ruling, it should have been 9-0, because the government has no business telling businesses what to do unless they're violating a law. And there's no law requiring them to do that. And the government is not giving the businesses the resources to implement the program. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, they're making their the making life miserable. Well, the, they've actually admitted they don't have the resources. That's why they're talking right. about We're millions and billions of things on order. Right, and they're getting the resources. And well, I'm talking about the resources. Somebody, to, you know, who's paying the the employee to monitor the program and implement right. the program. Right. The other right. thing concerns me is that two of the conservative, so-called conservative uh, justices, support sided with the liberals. And in a five-three decision, said it's okay to require this of health workers. I want to. I, so I want to say this, Frank. I know what you're. I know where you're going with this, but I, I would like to read the opinions before I throw Kavanaugh right. or anybody under the bus. I. I I'm well, not. I'm, all bad. I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm happier to have. I'm happier to have those people on the Supreme Court than I would have been to have Barack Obama's oh, appointees oh. on the Supreme Court. Oh, oh absolutely. Yeah, I mean, so I, they, I, they may do yeah. things I, I disagree with, but on the whole, I'm, I'm very happy with them. And I'd like to see what their reasoning was. And I, I, I'm curious to know, as you are, I think, why they uh, flipped or, or split it as, as, as they did. But let's wait and see well, what they, they a, said before we condemn it. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm just saying they made, they made a – because it sounds nice – in the case, I think it's a popular decision to say, well, healthcare workers should be required to do this. There again, healthcare workers are all employed by somebody other than mm-hmm. the government. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. they're keeping in place the requirement for contractors mm-hmm. and all these people to receive federal money to do, to implement the programs. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's fine if they write that into the contract, but even contract, mm-hmm. contractors shouldn't be yeah. required to do that unless that's stated in the contract. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. Frank, i got to hold you there, sir, but I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for the call. We're going to take this quick break for KTSA Time Saver Traffic. Yeah, I, I um, a good a good discussion if you want to have a, a, a nice debate with a liberal friend or a Democratic friend is how is it that Donald Trump's uh, propensity for dictatorship kept you awake at night and you were wetting yourself, and then Joe Biden starts declaring powers and emergencies and you're saying we've got to let him do that what if trump gets back in in 2024 
he you realize all the all the the places Biden goes with new executive powers are available to every future president. I know you don't think that's how it works, but it's time to put your big boy pants on and understand that is how it works. That's exactly how it works. Every president enjoys the accrued expansion, all right, of the of the executive powers. So in fact, each president, if you will, becomes more powerful than the one before him, which is not what was supposed to happen, but is what actually does happen. So where is all your fear of a dictator, fear of a demagogue, fear that there'll never be another election? How are you reckoning that? See what they say. Ask them that question and see what they say. Remember that terrible traffic jam up on uh, I-95 in Virginia? They had that winter storm, and it, uh, then they had a chain reaction accident, and a bunch of people were stuck in their cars overnight and into the next day. And There's a great story that's come out of that um, about a man named Devante Williams. He was an Uber driver, and he had picked up um, a young woman a teenager, at Union Station in Washington, D.C., the big, the big uh, train station. He had picked her up that night, and she wanted to go to Williamsburg, Virginia. And um, they start driving. He notices the traffic. He notices a lot of brake lights. He uses his nav to take an alternate route, but the police direct him back onto the interstate because the storm is now closing down those secondary roads and knocking down trees and stuff. So they get back on I-95, and he realizes uh, this is going to be an ordeal. The the girl is in the back seat. She's talking to her family, and um, she's kind of, you know, emotional and overwrought. She's had a long trip, and it's the middle of the night, and she's in the back of this Uber. And um, he's given her... uh, He's putting the heat on, and he's giving her snacks and stuff like that. Well, eventually, they're able to turn around and go back to D.C., which that was the best outcome for people in that situation. If they were able to get to a place where they could do a turnaround, the, the people that couldn't do that were the ones that were there for you know 24 hours or 36 hours or whatever. So they do the turnaround, and now they're back at Union Station. And he doesn't want to leave her there. She's a kid. So he convinces her parents to let him get her a hotel room so she can rest and be safe. He said, they don't know me, I don't know them, and I get that, but they want to know their child is safe. He got her checked into the hotel. Now, this is hours after he had picked her up. I think it was like eight or nine hours after this all started. And a friend of the family was eventually able to get her and get her home, and she texted him and told her he'd, she'd finally gotten home, and she thanked him, and the parents thanked him, and Uber is now saying we're going to pay all of his expenses. The reason I tell this story, and I'm not a huge Uber user because I have a car, but I have used Uber when I've traveled um, to other cities where I was just going to be there briefly and didn't need a car. Um, Uber gets a bad name because every so often an Uber driver or a Lyft driver does something horrible. But Day in and day out, and night in and night out, these are just people like you and me. I mean, they literally are. They're every kind of person, every age, every walk of life. And um, I think it's good to know that there are people like Devontae Williams 
these are the kinds of people that don't usually make the news. This is the kind of thing that should, I think. You can Google it or go onto any search engine and find out where free testing and the free testing site is available. But, Madam Vice President, the fact that we're still telling people to Google where you can get a test and... Well, you should, but, but, oh, but come on now. I mean, really, if you, if you want to figure out how to get across town to some restaurant you heard is great, you usually do Google. <laughs> Thank you, Grandma. Do Google. Do some Google. Can you do? Can you do me a Google? Six thirty nine KTSa Jack Riccardi. Um, I, today's a hopeful day. I think you know. I I I mostly like where the Supreme Court went with these mandates. Um, I like the fact that a lot of people across the political spectrum are disgusted with the way the president comported himself in Georgia and are saying it. Um, Even his defenders in the media are at least questioning, did he go a bit too far? It'll start somewhere, right? And the death knell for making election integrity illegal and making elections federal came when Senator Kirsten Sinema gave an excellent speech on the Senate floor um, announcing, reconfirming that she will not vote to suspend the filibuster. We played some excerpts uh, from her speech. It was excellent. It's worth noting that a lot of what she said, although she said it in her own words, was in concert, was identical to what Senator Joe Biden used to say, Senator Chuck Schumer used to say, Senator Hillary Clinton used to say, Senator Ted Kennedy used to say, and many other uh, leading Democratic senators of recent history. It's incredible, in fact, that they used to be so consistent about it, and they have all experienced simultaneous amnesia about it now. Senator Tom Cotton, who's a Republican, took a different approach. He gave a speech that was comprised almost entirely of Chuck Schumer's old words. In other words, his speech was Chuck Schumer coming out of the mouth of Senator Tom Cotton. Take a listen to this. The senator from Arkansas. Right now, we are on the precipice of a constitutional crisis. We're about to step into the abyss. I want to talk for a few minutes why we're on that precipice and why we're looking into that abyss. Let me first ask a fundamental question. What is the crisis that calls for the undoing of two centuries of tradition? Are senators merely doing their jobs as legislators, responding to a generalized public calling for the abolition of the filibuster? Clearly not. It is not the American people at large who are demanding detonation of the nuclear option 
The nuclear option is being pushed largely by the radioactive rhetoric of a small band of radicals who hold in their hands the political fortunes of the president. Constitutional scholars will tell us that the reason we have these rules in the Senate, unlimited debate, two-thirds to change the rules, the idea that 60 have to close off debate, is embodied in the spirit and rule of the Constitution. That is what the Constitution is all about. And we all know it. It is the Senate where the Founding Fathers established a repository of checks and balances. It's not like the House of Representatives, where the Majority Leader or the Speaker can snap his fingers and get what he wants. On important issues the Founding Fathers wanted, and they were correct in my judgment that the slimmest majority should not always govern. The Senate is not a majoritarian body. The bottom line is very simple. The ideologues in the Senate want to turn the Founding Fathers, what the Founding Fathers called the cooling saucer of democracy, into a rubber stamp of dictatorship. They will make this country into a banana republic where if you don't get your way, you change the rules. Are we going to let them? It will be a doomsday for democracy if we do. I, for one, hope and pray that it will not come to this. But I assure my colleagues, at least speaking for this senator, I will do everything I can to prevent the nuclear option from being invoked, not for the sake of myself or my party, but for the sake of this great republic and its traditions. Those are powerful words, but they're not mine. Every word of my speech today was originally spoken by our esteemed colleague, the senior senator from New York. Chuck Schumer. Senator Schumer spoke so eloquently in defense of the Senate's rules, customs, and traditions when the fortunes of his party looked a little different. My, how times have changed. Now it's Senator Schumer's fingers that are hovering over the nuclear button, ready to destroy the Senate for partisan advantage. Think about it. The narrowest majority in Senate history wants to break the Senate rules to control how voters in every state elect senators. Could there be a better argument to preserve the Senate's rules, customs, and traditions? So before it's too late, let us reflect on the wise and eloquent words of Senator Schumer words that are as true today as they were when he spoke them, even if Senator Schumer is singing a different tune today. Madam President, I yield the floor. That's <laughs> pretty good stuff. Um, probably very easy to do, you know. They probably did Google on Chuck Schumer and filibuster, right? Found all of his strongest statements and words 
And um, th- that's the thing about these guys. They stay in office now for so long that they wind up being on both sides of everything. I guess if you have a shorter political career, you don't have to run that risk. But, uh, yeah, great speech in defense of keeping the Senate a deliberative 60-vote body. Delivered by Tom Cotton, the words of Chuck Schumer. I love that song. Can I say that? Love that song. And would be singing it at the top of my lungs if you couldn't hear me right now. For that, you should be grateful. We're going to remember the great Ronnie Spector, but first, real quick on the JR poll tonight, powered by Stevens Roofing, is President Biden's 500 million more tests promise too little too late? 95% 95% said yes, it is too little too late. Tomorrow night, a new JR poll starting at 4 or anytime at KTSA.com. She was born Veronica Bennett, and she and her multiracial bandmates grew up in the Washington Heights neighborhood of Manhattan. They had an incredible career as one of the premier girl groups of the 1960s, but it wasn't fated to be that way. In interviews years later, Ronnie Spector would talk about how the Ronettes got their start. They weren't even called the Ronettes originally. They had some other clunky name. And they would play these clubs, and their gimmick was to wear the tightest, shortest dresses they could find. They said the other girl groups of the time, think like the Shirelles, were wearing these big party dresses, you know, very very sort of Eisenhower-era-looking outfits. And they said, you know, we went the other way. We put on heavy mascara and makeup and short dresses. And the crowd loved it. We had everything except a hit. We didn't have a hit record. They got an audition with one of the hottest record producers of the 1960s, Phil Spector. And Phil Spector's trademark was the so-called Wall of Sound. He was able to find songs and a sound that made the Ronettes. In short order, they were opening for the Rolling Stones. They became personal friends of the Beatles. They were it girls in the 1960s. And um, while they were having all this success and world tours, the private life was not so great. Uh, Ronnie married Phil Spector. They had a very unhappy marriage. She would write about it later on. He was abusive. We've, of course, learned a lot more about him in recent years. They divorced in 1974, and he went to prison for murder in 2009. Ronnie Spector's career uh, seemed to be over in the late 1960s. And then, and then this is the story I love. I think this might be the greatest second act in American popular music. I've never heard a better second act story than this one. So one night in 1985, Ronnie Spector is living in a tiny little apartment washing the dishes I mean, you can't make up stuff like this. Her career is over. Her neighbors don't even know who she is. She gets a phone call, and it's Eddie Money. And Eddie Money at this point is also kind of in a career lull. He'd been very big in the 70s, uh, but his career has kind of hit the skids at this point. And he calls her up, and he says, I've got a song they want me to do 
I don't really like it. I, I don't think it's very good. But I think we could do it together. And he, he hears her, he hears all this noise in the background, and he says, what are you doing? And she says, I'm washing the dishes, honey. I don't sing anymore. And Eddie Money says to her, honey, it's time for you to sing again. That song, which he didn't think was very good, was Take Me Home Tonight. It was on his sixth album, Can't Hold Back. It was his and her comeback. When he read the lyrics, he said, I suddenly thought of the Ronnie Spector line, Be My Little Baby, and what it would sound like if the guy in the song is listening to that. And so they interspersed it. You have to remember, too, that was not very commonly done, what we would now probably call kind of like sampling almost, right? It wasn't a common thing. Uh, but they did it. The light bulb moment went off. And um, and it happened. By the way, when Eddie Money went to the record company with his idea, they said, we love the idea, but we don't love the idea of using her. They had somebody else in mind, and he pushed for Ronnie Spector. He said, it's got to be her. It's got to be that line. He convinced her to come back to recording and the music. She didn't want to do it. She was afraid to do it. And we all are better off for it. So rest in peace, Ronnie Spector. We love you. We love your music. And uh, you're everybody's little baby tonight. Take me home tonight.